Welcome to the Ephesians in August podcast, episode 8, Waging Peace. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Oh. In this podcast, we'll be focusing on Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20, the passage on the armor of God. As we begin our reflections on this passage, Pause for a moment and think about the state of the world today. Do you think it's mostly good? Is it totally bad? Or is is it a mixture of both? The optimist in me sees the power of love in our world. People care for others, especially the most vulnerable in our society, such as the poor, the oppressed, and the refugee. In our communities of faith, Many people are giving of their time and resources to help others. In times of bereavement and loss, compassionate people come alongside of the ones who are walking through the valley of grief to pray and to weep with them. Over the years of teaching in the in-ministry program, I have witnessed cohort after cohort come together and walk together through the challenges of school, life, and ministry. There has always been a spirit of acceptance, love, and grace within these groups. At the same time, when I look at the world today, I see a lot of anger, intolerance, oppression, conflict, and fear. People commit acts of violence to lash out at their enemies or to make a political statement. Public discourse has become antagonistic as people routinely wage wars of words, shouting down their adversaries with insults. It's even become somewhat fashionable to make sweeping and often negative generalizations about others. At times, there seems to be a profound lack of love, compassion, truth, and justice in our world. As we reflect on these polarities within our world, we're drawn to Scripture in order to help us process all of this. Ephesians 6, 10-20 is helpful in this regard, as it provides insight into the church's response to evil. In this passage, the church is called to resist evil, but not through its own strength or in the way that the world fights its battles. Christians are to rely on God's power and stand together against evil by putting on God's armor, comprised of truth, righteousness or justice, peace, salvation, faith, the Spirit, God's Word, and prayer. The passage begins with the phrase, finally, in Greek, tu loipu. This signals the climactic conclusion of the letter. Yoder Neufeld uses the terminology of ancient rhetoric in classifying this subject as a peroration. He writes, in a peroration, the author or speaker recapitulates the main themes of the letter or speech to motivate the audience to action. This passage, then, brings the letter to a close with a rousing call to the church to continue to engage in God's mission in the world. Ephesians began by reminding us of our identity as members of the body of Christ. And in the second half, the letter calls us to act in light of this new reality. The second half of the letter contains several contrasts pointing out the unmistakable difference between the new life in Christ and the life apart from Christ. 
Christians are called to reject their former way of living and to embrace the new self that God has created for them. Clearly, this new way of living puts us at odds with the typical way that the world operates. So, if we take seriously our role in God's mission for all creation, then we will encounter opposition. This passage then addresses the reality of that opposition and gives the church guidance on how to endure it. Timothy Gombus has written an excellent book on the letter to the Ephesians entitled The Drama of Ephesians, Participating in the Triumph of God. I highly recommend this book to you. I'd like to read a key paragraph from this chapter on Ephesians. Columbus writes, According to Ephesians, the Church performs the cosmically significant role of divine warfare through mundane embodiments of God's life on earth. Cosmic conflict does not involve defiant chest-thumping in the face of the defeated powers. On the contrary, we are called to purposeful, humble, cruciform faithfulness as we perform Jesus for the good of the world. As we will see, the Church embodies the divine warrior by undergoing constant community transformation through renewed imaginations and practices. When the Church participates in this transformative process, it harnesses and radiates God's resurrection power, which has a transformative effect on outsiders. This is how the people of God transform their surrounding cultures. This is in direct contrast to the Church's long tradition of aggressive coercion and harsh denunciation. Such strategies are surrenders in divine warfare, since they are capitulations to worldly community dynamics. The Church must be a community of wisdom and discernment. And finally, the Church must be a culture of justice. When the people of God cultivate these patterns of life, the Church performs the role of divine warrior in the world. What I find helpful about Gombus's reflections is the pro- focus on the Church and its mission in the world, as opposed to a strictly individualistic interpretation of the passage. As the body of Christ, we face these spiritual battles, and we need to take up our cues from this passage, which establishes two very important points. First, the strength to face this opposition comes from God alone. And second, people are not the enemies. The passage begins with a command, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His power. The imperative, and do not mu sta, is a passive, stressing that it is God who provides the power, but the church must take the initiative. God is the source of our strength, yet we need to take the initiative by asking, trusting, and depending on His power. We cannot merely pull up our bootstraps and solve the manifold problems of our community and our world on our own. At the same time, we cannot comfortably sit back and and just wait for God to act. There is a synergy of God's power and our willingness to be empowered for mission.
Verse 11 introduces the primary metaphor for God's power in the passage, the armor of God. The command, put on the whole armor of God, is a call for us to take action, yet it entails a complete dependence upon God. God provides his armor, but we need to act and put it on. This verse also introduces the one who opposes God and his people. Christians are commanded to put on God's armor so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The evil one, then, is the major enemy whose tricks and tactics seek to undermine the church and thwart God's peacemaking mission in the world. Sometimes, however, we miss the point and make people the enemy. Verse 12 emphasizes this. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood. Yoder Neufeld provides a challenging reflection on this idea in the text. He writes, These verses are clearly meant to challenge and encourage the church to courageous engagement with the powers that resist God's peace. Sadly, they have also provided encouragement for a crusade mentality that has left countless victims in its wake. The certainty of being right and of doing the work of God, when fused with a view of the other as enemy, has led to arrogance and blindness, often to great violence. The history of the Christian church has been littered with examples of our battles against people. From the Crusades to the Holocaust, Christians have excluded rather than embraced those outside the church. In our modern context, this point cannot be ignored. When entire groups of people are demonized as the enemy, Christians need to remember this verse. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our response should be one of compassion and concern toward all people. Ephesians 2.2 tells us that we were once under the control of the evil one until God reached down and gave us life. We need to see others through God's eyes as people that he loves and longs to be in fellowship with. As we face the true opponent, God's armor helps us to stand firm or to resist and undo the crafty methods of the devil. For the struggle that we endure is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This fourfold description of the enemy clearly establishes them as evil spiritual beings, as opposed to flesh and blood. Concerning this list of spiritual entities, Yoder Neufeld writes, They are intended to be shorthand for the myriad of powers, great and small, personal and impersonal, individual and systemic, that resist the saving activity of God among humanity. Now, I recognize that in the modern Western mind, demons and devils don't exist. Here, I must rely on the wisdom of C.S. Lewis from his famous book, The Screwtape Letters. He writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist 
or a magician with the same delight. When it comes to, de when it comes to the devil, opinions seem to swing between these two poles, skepticism and obsession. Demons either don't exist or they're hiding behind every coffee pot. Either extreme is unhealthy. Yet another pendulum swings back and forth with respect to the interpretation of this passage. Some read this passage only in terms of demonic forces wreaking havoc in the lives of individual persons, while others focus on the systemic manifestations of evil manifested in economic exploitation, militarism, racism, and sexism. Again, either pole under, underestimates the grip of evil on our world. An individualistic reading often ignores the broad-ranging opposition to God's mission in our world. A systemic reading tends to overlook situations where individual persons need to be liberated from evil. Ultimately, both struggles exist, and it is God's power at work within us that enables us to resist evil and to participate in His mission to reconcile all things to Christ. The central metaphor of God's power in this passage is the armor of God. Paul's description of the armor and the weapons would have been familiar to his readers as the equipment of Roman soldiers. At the same time, the image of God as divine warrior may have also influenced Paul's words here. In particular, a text from Isaiah 59 records the prophet's dismay at the evil in his nation, sin, murder, corruption, injustice, violence, oppression, and dishonesty. In response to this terrible situation, God acted. Isaiah 59, 15-17 reads, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm brought victory, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in fury as a mantle. The important difference between Isaiah 59 and Ephesians 6 is that God's people are instructed to put on the armor to undo evil, injustice, and oppression. This creative interaction of Isaiah and Ephesians emphasizes that this is God's battle, yet God's people are drawn into the struggle against evil. While Isaiah 59 only refers to the armor of God, the armor of righteousness, and the helmet of salvation, Ephesians 6 expands this metaphor to include other items of military gear. What are the pieces of armor that the church needs to put on in order to resist evil? We put on truth as a belt. Paul has emphasized truth throughout Ephesians. The good news that saved us is the word of truth. We are to hold to the truth in love. We have learned that truth is in Jesus. We are to speak the truth to our neighbor. In word and in deed, we counter the lies of the evil one with the truth of Christ. We take up the breastplate of righteousness and we live morally or justly 
we seek to do right by addressing the injustice in our world and intervening on behalf of the oppressed and the marginalized. We stand on solid ground and are prepared to march by lacing up the shoes of the gospel of peace. While our world is marked by antagonism and division, our message is that Christ is our peace. Through his death on the cross, he has removed the enmity between God and people and the hostility between humans. We also need faith as a shield to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. In the heat of the battle, it is our deep faith in God that keeps us going, even when evil strikes hard. We can trust God's promises to empower, protect, and act on our behalf because He is faithful. We put on salvation as a helmet. The hope of salvation protects us in the battle since it anticipates our ultimate deliverance from evil at the end of the ages, while assuring us of God's liberating power in the present. It is this message of salvation that we proclaim to others seeking to liberate others who are dominated by evil. Finally, we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The presence and the power of God's Spirit enables us to discern and to stand against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The power of God's Word cuts to the deepest, innermost parts of people and disarms the lies of of the evil one. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the Spirit, and the Word. This is the gear that God has provided for us in our struggle with evil. A final and essential item is prayer. Verse 18 calls us to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Intercessory prayer for all the Lord's people is a vital practice for the church. Intercessory prayer opens up our eyes to the areas of struggle within our world and within our communities. And so a prayerful community, exercising truth, justice, peace, and a courageous speaking of God's word is a threat to the powers of evil. I'd like to conclude this episode with some words from Martin Luther King from an essay that he wrote in 1956. He writes, Along the way of life, someone must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and evil. The greatest way to do that is through love. I believe firmly that love is a transforming power that can lift a whole community to new horizons of fair play, goodwill, and justice. Love is our greatest instrument and our great weapon, and that alone. We will not retaliate with hate, but we will stand with love in our hearts and stand resisting injustice with the same determination with which we started out. We need a great deal of encouragement in this movement. Of course, one thing that we are depending on from you, and not only you, but other communities, is prayer. We ask people everywhere to pray that God will guide us, pray that justice will be done, and that righteousness will stand. 
This concludes the final episode of our Ephesians in August podcast. So, so long, and God bless. Roger, Zero G, and I feel fine.